Welcome, friends and colleagues. We are up to discussing men and women. Now, that's a huge topic, and it's a topic essential to understanding human nature and understanding our task in life. And obviously, there's awful great many things that we can learn. We discussed earlier that the first chapter of Genesis, unlike those who see it as representing a contrast to the second chapter, Man 1 and Man 2, I believe foreshadows chapter 2. What I mean by that is that chapter 1 sets up the whole pattern of creation, which is making two things a day, two opposite things that are unity. And whenever it seems difficult to comprehend how these two things, these two particular things could be unified, it uses the word create, such as in the beginning God created heaven and earth. This comes up again a few times, comes up by, by the two serpents, which how could two serpents be unity? And then in a staccato fashion, rapidly it comes up by the creation of men and women. I will read the verse 127, first in the Hebrew and then with the English translation, and point something out. And from there, we will get into the analysis of what it means to be together and to be separate one that equals two and the break that happened in the second chapter of Genesis as we discussed there are multiple breaks not just one but this is certainly one of the most important ones so it says and God created men in his image he created him in the image of God and he he created them, men and women. So this is strange and contradictory. He created him in the image of God, and then a man, male and female, he created them. So is it him? Is it them? And how do you uh, understand that? The Bible lays out for us a pattern in which man was created as a species, unified, maybe more like, for with a bad comparison, ants. Everybody is one, and one is everybody. Men and women were one organism. The Talmud tells us uh, in Erevin 18 that men and women were created joined. When it says that a woman was created from the side, not the rib, the word means side of men, the initial creation was that they were together as one being. We will get into that in a minute. And then they were separated and then it says that God fashioned men. Fashioning means you take a thing out of another thing. You have a mass of clay, you take out a sculpture from it. What is taken out is very different from what it was before. 
But that's not how man was created. Man was created male and female. Uh, and, uh, uh, according to the Talmudic perception, they were actually joined together. And then they were separated at the side. And that is how we got to have what we have now, a separate man and woman. In some way, this is just a representation of the idea. Man was created. He was created. Male and female, he created them. To get to the understanding of this separation, what I'd like to do is pivot to the Song of Songs. <clears throat> the Song of Songs, I think, is the most difficult book of the Bible. Uh, not because it contains obscure prophecies like Daniel, or profound ideas like Job, or because of the difficulty of its language and the broad sweep of its vision, like Ecclesiastes Cohelus. It is because it is poetically the most developed composition in the Hebrew Bible, and one that uses allegory and allusion in ways that are different than simple poetic books, such as the Proverbs, for example. It is a long and extended poem whose goal and functions is not only not clearly spelled out, and keys to the interpretation of which are not made available to us, but it's also a work of layer upon layer of metaphor, at the same time it's radically symbolic and focused upon its image. <coughs> Excuse me. The reader who does not understand the message grasps nothing beyond frantic movements back and forth, rapidly shifting landscapes, the wonderful rich scenery, fauna and flora. But in truth, the Song of Songs explains the first chapters of Genesis. The book is composed of what appears to be five units. See the Malbim to version one, to verse one, I'm sorry, where he explains the uh, composition of the work. So there is a young woman from the oasis of Ein Gedi, who is a shepherdess or garden vineyard, and there is her beloved, who may be King Solomon, maybe another shepherd. The commentaries talk about that. The woman and her beloved sing praises to each other and anticipate their glorious yet-to-come meeting, except that, that the meeting never happens. For some reason or another, whenever one moves towards the other, the other moves away like the gazelles that are omnipresent in their songs and their environment. Gazelles are really difficult animals to catch, and they are easily frightened, and they escape and run away from any contact. These two lovers are compared to gazelles. <coughs> the interesting thing about this work is that all these attempts to come close never succeed, and even at the end, they never meet. Something always happens. One or another does not arrive, or if one does arrive, the other one runs away and is not available. On one occasion, the man gets as far as her door, but she wouldn't open it, wouldn't get up to open it. Then in remorse, she runs after him, but does not find him. And at the end, you would think they should meet them, we should have a happy ending, but we don't. At the end, after citing jealousy that is as harsh as death, she sends him away to the mountains of division. I want to say a word about that. Haray Bater. Uh, the, word, the root bater, 
the Beit Tov Reish root refers to something that was once one, but now has been divided into parts, but remains connected in some fashion. I take this from the work Yeria Shlomo, a work on biblical synonyms by Rav Shlomo Pappenheim of Breslau, who lived 1740 to 1814. I think that's the key to the song. <coughs> so why is it that these two characters constantly try to connect and they don't? It is because it's basic to human experience that man searches for a woman and a woman for a man. Why is that? Why is it that men search and pine for a woman and the woman for a man? So I'll start with the Greeks. The Greeks had an idea. We'll see that the Bible had a different idea. In Plato's Symposium, the playwright Aristophanes posits that human beings were once composed of a male and female in one body. Uh, parenthetically, I find this fascinating. That is the same idea as the Talmudic idea. Uh, how did the Greeks in the 5th century BC have, have this concept? Where did they get it from? Did it, is it something that they picked up somehow from the Hebrews, to which they really didn't have much of a contact? Or is this a shared archetype of humanity in its Jungian uh, formulation? I don't know. But because the male and female in the same body were double strong and they threatened the gods, Zeus cut them apart at the sides. But when he saw that they vainly tried to attach themselves on the sides, he reconfigured them to the front. So now they can rejoin and recapture their oneness that they once had and lost. Uh, this idea that love is recapturing the lost idyllic unity that was once and then was lost remained very influential in Western culture. We will speak about biblical idea of love at another point. It is not exactly that, or maybe it is partially that. This deserves a separate treatment, and as central as the concept of love is for human interactions and for human and God interactions, it deserves a very separate and prolonged treatment. Not now. The, the Greek sense of love is, to me, this kind of love that feels that it takes back what is rightfully its own. It's self-assured, it's vengeful, it aims to restore and take back. It does not view the other partner as an independent being that deserves respect, but as a lost part of oneself and does not tolerate dissent. To me, it's an abusive love. Jealous love that will impose its will by manipulation or force. It does not expect friction, does not suffer anxiety, it demands submission, does not imagine failure, because one who reunites with himself, of course, is a sure success. There's no doubt in this love. It's aggressive and smug and self-assured. But careful reading of Genesis 2.24 says that the biblical view is something else. It says also that, yeah, it presupposes that men and women were somehow more united than they are now after the sin. 
and we discussed the Talmudic view of that. But it says, <coughs> Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So here a man leaves not his other half, but his father and mother. When he unites with wife, something new is produced. And this, in their offspring they become one flesh. The word one flesh, of course, could mean that they just connect physically, but another interpretation they become if you if you look at the word basar that is used flesh, uh, it always have uh, um, an allusion and tonality of a family uh, or relative. Now the biblical demand of men and women to become one flesh is a lot more difficult, scary. It's not just to take back what is yours, where you're secure and where you're assured of success and restoration. Men and women have to become one. Not recapture their lost unity, but become a wholly new combined unit. This kind of love, this kind of joining, requires one to adjust. Perhaps shave off parts that do not fit together, give a sacrifice of themselves in order to fit together. Success is not assured, and as we all know, failure is common. But when it works, it produces something that is much greater than the sum of its parts. It's synergistic. This is a Midrash, Genesis Rabbah 17.7. If you know Aristophanes, you'll understand this Midrash. A Roman noble woman asked Rabbi Yossi, why was the woman produced through stealing? That is, the, she was removed from Adam without letting Adam know. Adam was put to sleep for this. He said to her, this is like a, if a person deposited with you an unkia, a measurement, a unit of measurement of silver in private, and you return to him in public a litra, the word litra comes from this, another much bigger measurement, and you return to him in public a litra of gold. What I see in this midrash is that the Roman noblewoman is thinking of Aristophanes, and she's thinking of... Uh, separation of women from men as being a tragedy that is never completely fixed. You got to fight to take it back. But Rabbi Yossi explains the Torah's view. Rabbi Yossi teaches that the love between a man and a woman is an immeasurable gift from God, which is meant to result in adjustment and growth for both. And this growth happens in the public arena of community and family and people, and it's not just about that man or that woman being restored. There's another source which I mentioned uh, that shows that love is a process of adjustment and growth over a lifetime. Not a single moment of restoration merging, and then everyone effortlessly lives happily forever after us is the trope of Western culture. In Bavakama 97b, it says that the medallion of our father Abraham displayed an old man and old woman on one side, and a young man and a damsel on the other. This is a life. This is a life of a man and a woman, life of a family. Abraham and Sarah were a unit, but not by some act of Abraham taking back what was taken from him, but through hard work of understanding and validating one another from their youth and to their old age. 
has noted the medallion had two sides, one that had the young couple and one that had the old couple. So this work is hard, it requires self-renunciation. Going back to the Song of Songs, it is a wonderful work because it's about the particular two persons at one moment in history and also stand in for the great love between Israel and Hashem. And, and yes, also between an individual and Hashem and humanity and Hashem. God created man and offered him the Garden of Eden. Man repeatedly rebelled. God then chose Israel and led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Restoration. But it wasn't a one-time sight and it didn't just bring things to the way they were. He offered them an opportunity to grow close together with him. Together they built two temples, two homes, in which they could live side by side. But Israel, humanity, and each one of us individuals in the temple of his or her own body could not give enough, adjust enough, transcend themselves enough, rise enough, elevate themselves consistently enough to sustain this love. They were self-centered, they ran, they hid, they sought explanation excuses for their failings. They did not want this sublime love badly enough to change, to sacrifice and give. And so we remain separate. Separate from one another. Separate men from women. Separate men from God. This is why this book is about the most central and basic issue of faith. And this is why the Torah begins with it. It is about how we can restore, but not just come back to the Garden of Eden, that is definitely which will, what will happen, but it's also to come back transformed to the Garden of Eden. This is why the Song of Songs are called Holy of Holies. Uh, and level after level, it's overlaid with layers and layers of metaphor. And that is why I think the key to the Song of Songs is the second chapter of Genesis. We spoke about many things. May we derive inspiration from them for our own lives and maybe soon merit to see this restoration dependent a great deal on our efforts in self-improvement and change as individuals, as nations, as humanity. And may we soon see the complete redemption. With all the blessings.